0: Good morning. It's good to see you. Hi, Online Church, all across the state and other states, and sometimes we have watchers from the other side of the world. My mother sometimes watches from the other side of the world. Hi, Mom. Um, It's good to be together. Welcome. I'm Bronwyn Lee. I'm the pastor of Discipleship and Women here. If you are new or newish, one of the lucky folk that gets to this church home and actually be on staff here, which is wonderful. If you are newish and wondering who is this strange band of believers gathering together on a Sunday morning, we are a local church here in Davis that are committed to helping one another discover faith in Jesus Christ, help one another grow in love for God and for one another. We want to live as ambassadors of hope in a world that needs it, yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, As we gather here on Sundays, as we meet one another throughout the week, that's what we're trying to do, help one another, grow in our faith, hope, and love. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as well, encourage one another as we worship. It's been a week, folks. It's been a week. Um, The loss of a monarch, change in the tides in the Ukrainian war, um, and today is 9-11, which is just a really... Somber day of memory. The world changed uh, 21 years ago significantly. And um, I hope that as you are processing the things that are going on, that uh, Steve's encouragement last week for us to pray and just remember um, to lay these things before the Father and to say, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is something we can pray as we process these things. Yes? It's good to know that there's something we can pray in the light of it, right? Okay. If you were greeted by a warm and friendly face at the door as you came in, that means you made eye contact with one of the welcome team heroes. Aren't they the best? Just the warm, wonderful, welcoming faces. Those champions of community. There was an article in the New York Times this week that talked about social connection and just what a difference it makes to us day to day to have someone be warm and to see you. You know, Often we're so afraid of starting conversations with someone because we think that they're like going to judge us or find us lacking in their assessment. And actually research shows that that's not true. They're just grateful that someone was nice to them. And often that's so true. Hey, We just want someone to to be kind to us and warm to us. And the welcome team at our church is just so excellent at doing that. And so if you are part of the welcome team, uh, there is a lunch that is meant to encourage and equip you after the service next Sunday um, on the 18th. And if you're listening to this and thinking, I'm having the fear of missing out, I also want to be a warm and welcoming face. I also like seeing people and making them feel at home. You too can be a champion of warmth and welcome. And find out what joining the Welcome Team is all about. Uh, Come along to lunch next Sunday. It's not a commitment to be here every single Sunday. It's saying, hey, I'm I'm interested in being part of the community that helps Welcome Community. And we'll feed you and equip you. This is like a win-win situation, folks. So next Sunday after church, come and join the Welcome Team Lunch. I also want to put on your radar, if this is not immediately on your radar, that Davis is going to swell this week. Okay? 35,000 students are coming back yay we love this. We love being a college town like that 's part of our of who we are. We want to love these students well. Um, if you are a giver to the um, finances of this church and you give online or you put money in the boxes, whatever, I want you to know that part of what you 're investing in is our mission to this campus that 's what 's making that possible. We can fund a college ministry that has a forty year legacy of reaching out to campus to Help spiritually curious people find Jesus, to help people coming from churches and looking for community, grow in their faith. So thank you for your partnership and investment in college ministry. This is, your, this is part of what makes it happen, right? This very weekend, the 12 who are 12 of our college student leaders are away praying and being equipped to reach the campus for Jesus. So pray for them. Pray for college life. Pray for the 12. Pray for the students coming back this week. Your prayers are effective. God hears them and answers them. So would you pray for our campus this week? Yes. Yes. Because we are trusting that God loves this campus too and has plans for it. Amen? Totally. Okay. Um, Be ready to welcome them. We're going to see new faces over the next couple of weeks. They look like they've got it all together, but they need your woman friendly face. Can I see a woman friendly face? There it is. Okay. The students are excited to see that. Okay. Can I, um, as we get ready to learn together under the teaching of the scriptures, uh, I want you to get up and practice your warm and welcoming face and uh, say hello, welcome one another. Tell someone how glad you are that it isn't 112 degrees today.
1: All right, let's go ahead and grab our seats. It's great to be with you this morning and joining us in online. We're glad you're here. It's so good to be here together. I'm Steve, and I am the senior pastor here. And and if you missed last week, um, if you haven't caught the last couple of sermons, I want you to encourage you to do so. I I want you to go to our YouTube page, catch up with what we've done, um, or get to our, you know, get the sermon podcast we got going, you know, on your venue of choice, you know, Spotify or or Google, or Apple, um, because I'm urging you to do that Um, and to catch every sermon in this series because during the month of September, we're talking about the gospel. Because after all, we, we too often confuse the gospel with simply being about forgiveness and heaven, which are actually the proverbial tip of the iceberg in the way that Jesus talks about it. And all of the writings that the New Testament makes that elucidate, explain what Jesus had said. And so last week, we we started a gospel definition for us that we could kind of get. Um, We said, the gospel is the good news of God's kingdom breaking into history through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the macro view of God breaking in his kingdom. That that Jesus has brought the up there in heaven down here to the brokenness and depravity of our world. And that ellipsis right there, that little bitty ellipsis, signals that we've got more pieces to add to this definition each week for the rest of September, which includes today. But let's start here with this movie. Have you guys seen this movie? It's called 13 Lives. If you have Amazon Prime, you're going to go home and watch this after we talk about it a little bit. 13 Lives is this breathlessly intense Ron Howard creation. Yes, Apollo 11 come alive. Based on the true story of the rescue of 12 Thai teenagers and their soccer coach from the Tham Luang cave. It was a story that was splashed all over the news, and so maybe you've heard of it. Um, But what happened was, is that after a soccer practice, a group, uh, this group ventured into this Tom Luong cave. And right after they entered, the skies opened up and monsoon rains fell. And it was such a torrential downpour that the cave quickly filled up with water right behind them. Um, and trapped them there. And once the parents realize that their kids are missing, you know, in a panic, they, they rush to the cave and they, they try to retrieve them. But the cave and the waters, they proved impenetrable for these parents. And so no one knew if they were dead or alive and just trapped. And the crisis was so acute that the governor was called in and he came and, and he called in the Thai Navy SEAL team to get there. But once again... The cave and the waters, it proved impenetrable even for this Thai Navy SEALs. Even one of them died along the way. And so they opted for generators to pump water out, but they couldn't get the water out fast enough to retrieve this group of 13. And the cave and the waters, it continued to prove impenetrable. And that prompted thousands and thousands and thousands of volunteers from around the world to descend on this little part of Thailand, all in a concerted effort to help out with whatever skills they could offer because time seemed to be running out. And after 10 days, 10 days, two experienced cave divers from the UK volunteered they volunteered to take their 30 years of cave diving experience with scuba gear on, and they stepped forward to volunteer to go into this waterlogged cave to find the group, whether they'd be dead or alive. And their underwater journey through this cave is simply harrowing. They scuba dive in pitch black darkness maneuvering through very tight spaces stalagmites and stalactites kind of pushing them away and and currents that were so strong it took them six hours to get all the way to the end i mean if anyone is claustrophobic scared of the dark or unnerved with being trapped in water then these scenes are not for you Fast forward them, okay? I was sitting on the edge of my couch, like, biting my nails. Because if you know me, when I get nervous, I bite my nails, right? But spoiler, relief comes because these two eventually reach this group of 13. And they're unbelievably alive. And everyone is elated when, this, when these two get back up to the service. Thousands of people, they're elated, their parents. And then they realize how difficult it would be to get these kids out if not nearly impossible if it took six hours for two experienced cave divers to get to them if a Navy SEAL died trying to get to them then what chance did this group of teens and their coach have to get out but they were desperate and eventually they decided to do the unthinkable they would put scuba gear on each one of these boys they would anesthetize them, and then a the more experienced cave divers would lead them through, making sure they stayed sedated all the way out. And, and they knew that this was incredibly dangerous, but they figured it was better to try than to just leave them there because they would dry, die a sure slow death there. And so, one by one, they started to do this very thing. And amazingly, all thirteen were rescued after being in the cave eighteen days. And here's a picture of them, Alive and Well, sometime afterwards. It's, it's a movie that, that is riveting, but it made me squirm. Brought tears to my eyes when the rescue happened, like any great rescue story. And it reminded me that whenever a, a human life is trapped and in danger, nothing less than a massive rescue effort should be marshaled. It is, even in the rain, in that vein of a rescue effort, that the gospel is actually positioned. For however my, we might view the gospel, whatever take we might have, the gospel is actually God's massive rescue effort that even eclipses this one in 13 lives. This is news of God's rescue effort to penetrate what is otherwise impenetrable in sin and fallenness, tangles and death here. I mean, this is what has hit the airwaves and put on the global news feed, that that God has seen people, he's seen communities, he's seen the earth trapped, and so he launches this massive rescue effort that involved breaking his kingdom in through Jesus Christ. In particular... This involves a rescue effort of people because we are all trapped, whether we realize it or not. We're in need of rescue, and God has seen that. And he's launched a massive rescue effort to redeem people. Now, that may sound very paltry uh, in light of how bad everything may feel. But this is incredibly grand when we actually grasp what is packed into this. I mean, so wee deep and so wide is this concept that it, Paul needed Romans chapters 1 to 8 to unpack it and touch on it. And over the years, theologians have spilled mass quantities of ink. They've killed entire forests, writing about the depths and the incritus. Can you help me out with that word? Intricacies. Intricacies. Thank you. You rescued me (laughs) to unpack it. Now, obviously, we can't go into that kind of detail this morning, right? Um, We could, but we might be here a bit. um, And I don't think we have time for that. But in particular, that doesn't mean that we don't have wonder for us or grandeur can't be us, especially with how Paul explores it in Galatians chapter 4. In fact, when I studied this passage again, and I meditated on on, on God framing this redeeming of people, I, again, was kind of struck by awe. I mean, my brain was kind of swimming in wonder, and my heart in worship in new ways, and I hope to somehow translate some of that to you this morning. I'm going to do my best, okay? So if you have a Bible with you, I want you to take it out, your Bible app, handy on your phone. Find your way to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. And I want you to appreciate how God redeems us from, how he redeems us for, and then how we can experience it in the present. If you grabbed one of those blue Bibles and you're looking for Galatians 4, uh, verses 4 to 7, it's page 974. And with it open on your lap, you can follow along while Callum Lee comes up and reads it aloud. So let's listen to this. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is a breathtaking passage. If we'd slow down long enough to let our imaginations engage with what has happened and attached to this vision that Paul gives us, he said from the outside, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the fullness of of time who knows this except god who knows times and exact moments to do the exact thing we have to estimate our way through it god knows with precision god is eternal filling all time and extending beyond it to eternity past and to eternity future and so god knows the time and he could decipher when the time was ripe and when it was full to send his son on this rescued effort for us. To send him too soon would mean that time was green, so to speak. Not ripened for God's purposes to be accomplished fully. To send him too late uh, would mean the time had gone beyond its prime and it had rotted conditions for God's purposes to thrive in this world, in history. And so in the fullness of time God sent his son to enter into humanity as Jesus to live under the mosaic law in of the Old Testament as well as more broadly of being subject to the rule of God's law over humanity that we sense in our consciences that we feel in our guilt and in our shame that we experience with not being able to forgive ourselves for certain things. It's from that posture. It's from that place that Jesus would be able to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. To redeem people is an essential facet of what God was up to with Jesus breaking in his kingdom into history. And this word redeem may bring a lot of associations to our mind, uh, like compensating for something bad, like redeeming our past, right? Or like exchanging something else, for, uh, like redeeming a coupon at a grocery store, or redeeming tickets for a prize, right? But when Paul uses this word, he was borrowing language from the slave world, where to redeem meant to pay the full price to, required to free a slave. It was to pay the price tag attached to a slave that would cover their debt that they owed or cover what they owed from being a prisoner of war. And so in a very real way, Paul is saying something rather shocking to you and to me. He's positioning us as enslaved. Everyone is under the law, being subject to upholding God's standards as those who bear his image, carry the privilege and responsibility to represent him and reflect him wherever we may go, where we live and where we work and where we play. And we feel that enslavement to some extent. We we sense this to be true. We feel trapped in many ways, don't we? In the shame and guilt of our consciences, in not being able to forgive ourselves, in struggling to feel at home with just being ourselves and maybe in our bodies, or in sensing some mysterious oppression over us. And all of that is why many of us, why so many of us are in this mad scramble to find and experience freedom. We're, we're striving from, for freedom from restrictions because freedom is just that precious. Um, while the institution of slavery in the Roman world was more like indentured servitude, and so very different from the race-based slavery of our country's history, this is still, there's still an obvious striking similarity between them. And that's why I can't help think about a book that I read on sabbatical. It's called, you know, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Ann Jacobs. Originally, it was published as a novel under the pen name Linda Brent. Um, But later on, it was revealed there was actually an autobiography of Harriet's experience as an enslaved girl in North Carolina. And Harriet says that her experience was actually tame in comparison to other enslaved people. But being, you know, enslaved and as a female on top of that, she was in an incredibly vulnerable and desperate situation. At six years old, she was enslaved to a couple who seemed to compete with one another who could be the bigger sociopath, tormenting her physically, emotionally, and eventually, sexually, the husband making unwanted advances that she was powerless to stop, save by her wits. And Harriet was just desperate for freedom. And so when she got older, she ran away, but not too far. Her mother had actually been a freed slave. And so Harriet ran to her grandmother's place and ends up holding up in a crawl space above her grandmother's shed. And it was cramped, and it didn't even allow for her to do anything but actually lay down. And it was also leaky, letting in, you know, rain and whatnot. And it was rat infested. And she stayed there for seven years. For seven years, she endured, you know, the heat of North Carolinian days, which we had our heat last week. North Carolina throws in humidity as a good option as well. And she had to endure those cold December nights, coming out only at night to stretch her legs. And all the while, she's battling rats. Rain dripping in on her. It's it's an unbelievable what she endured. But that's how desperate she was for freedom. And that sort of crawl space was actually freer than being trapped in slavery. And it eventually paved the way for her to get freedom in in the north. She was willing to do anything to be free. And because we share her humanity, we feel that same sort of drive for freedom. And that's why some of us, we look to politics, don't we? thinking that if we had political freedom of the left or, or the right, then we'd be free. Then we would be happy and things would be right for us and as they should be for everyone else. And others have looked to our desires within to, to figure out an outlet, believing that if we only had freedom to express those desires in the ways that we wished to you, then we'd be free, then we'd be happy because we'd finally be satisfied. And others of us, we've looked to a cultural identity or an expression, thinking that if we were only free to be whoever we wanted to be, then we'd be happy because we'd stand out or we'd be able to describe our inner world. We'd gain some sort of clarity in the confusion that we feel. And others of us, we just look to money, thinking that if we just had enough, then we'd be free from debt, free from to buy whatever we want, free from worry, Free to be happy. And still others of us, you know, we've just opted to find that soulmate. Thinking if we only had that person that kind of just matches us completely, then we would be free. Then we would finally be everything we'd want to be because we'd have that one. And listen, we could keep going on and on, couldn't we? I mean, imagining for ourselves... Because we have looked to as many avenues for Outlets for Freedom as here sitting in this audience and and, and those watching online. But listen, listen. listen. All those efforts are simply trading one set of fetters for another. It's, it's, It's swapping an enslavement of one kind for an enslavement of a different kind that is equally disappointing and hurtful. It's fetters of a fragile identity crumbling underneath the whims around us and the whims within us. It's leg irons of transactional relationships that we require of other peoples to affirm us, leaving us with this pained inner loneliness, lack of real connection that we long for. It's chains of addiction, numbing us to the pain, but crippling us with even greater burdens. It's the continued prison of shame and guilt in our consciences and the iron bars of not being able to forgive ourselves of those certain things. Basically, going down those avenues, we feel the initial rush. I, I totally understand it. I get it because I've tried it, only to predictably and inevitably feel how it loses steam to make us free and to make us happy. And that loss of steam just signals a greater enslavement upon us that just another hit from those things won't get us out of, which then clues us in to a more dire one coming in eternity with God. And God has seen that about us. And he has launched a massive rescue effort in sending his son to be born as Jesus and live under the law. And there under the law, he would live the life that we should have lived. And he would die the death for our sins that we deserved at the cross to redeem us from the slavery. He paid the price tag to free us, giving us credit for his life before God and dying to pay any outstanding debt that we might have with our sin before God. If we receive Jesus in faith, follow him thereafter. And in that way, he brings us our pardon. He brings us our release now and then fully so in eternity before God as part of God's kingdom agenda breaking into history. And that means any of us can truly be freed if we'd only come to Jesus in faith. Admitting our sin, trusting God, Jesus, to have lived and died and rose to pardon us and release us, and then following him in life. That's the pathway to freedom. Haven't we tried those other avenues enough and felt the disappointment deeply enough yet? I mean, haven't we heard from people much older than ourselves and that where those avenues actually end up? If you haven't taken the step of faith and expressed that to God, then what else do you need? Some questions answered? Some time to verbally process with someone else? More experience with the Bible and and what it says. I would suggest to you that, that the freedom and the redeeming of Jesus is worth your time and your effort and your thought to consider if you want to believe it. And if and when you're ready, you can take that step of faith. You know, in the quietness of your heart, there's no giant religious opportunity that you need to do. Just speak to God about that. And you can grab me. I'd love to help you out. Any one of the staff would love to help you do that, even after the service today. But this, if this is a step that you've already taken, then I ask myself and I ask us all, do we appreciate this pardon and release? Or is it relegated to some religious corner? I mean, can we trust that if God doesn't hold anything against us, then why should we hold anything against ourselves and move towards forgiving ourselves? Would we trust Jesus enough that he actually brings freedom, not, you know, a killjoy in our life, enough to follow him wherever he leads us in life with what he teaches and what he models for us? I mean, would we... Reject those other freedom plans that that are bandied about all around us, that we feel deeply promoted within us, promoted around us, that we'd embrace the freedom that Jesus really gives in what he has done and what we would live like he would live and love like he would love, with his style, with his poise, with his gravitas. You see, God's kingdom has broken into history through Jesus to redeem us. But God's redeeming does not stop there. He even goes further beyond what we may feel and sound like familiar territory here to many of us. He not only redeems us from slavery, he also redeems us for something magnificent. Look back to that verse again and notice the other part of the redeeming, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. I mean, do you see? It's not just that we've been redeemed from slavery. We've also been redeemed for adoption as sons. Now, at first, you know, it sounds like no big deal and maybe even a little bit sexist for Paul to say that, right? But it's actually quite the opposite. Let me explain here. Adoption didn't function then like it functions today. Adoption would happen when a wealthy older man did not have a male heir daughters in that day could not be an heir because it was not a part of the rights and privileges of living in the Roman world or the Jewish world for that matter, unlike today. And so what Daddy Warbucks would do would to be look around for a worthy male heir. He'd choose a male servant that he really liked. He'd choose a boy that seemed to brim with potential and then he'd adopt that man or that boy. And at the moment of adoption, that boy, that man would cease to be what he was before and what station he held to being the adopted one, the adopted son of that wealthy man with all the rights and the privileges and honor in in that man's estate. And he'd carry his adopted father's name out into the outside world. And so Paul, he's actually suggesting something quite radical here, that God redeems for adoption unlike anyone else did in that day. God redeems men and he redeems women for adoption as sons. And they both have all the rights, all the privileges, all the honor of being on God's estate, regardless of their gender. There are no second-class citizens in God's family, he's saying, like there were in the Roman world. Jesus became what we are so that we could become like he is, as a son And have God as a father, enjoying all the rights, all the privileges, all the honor of being God's beloved progeny. Now, I know that this idea of God being a father always ends up kind of being filtered through our lens of our own fathers. And with so many in a room like this, so many watching online, you know, the the chance for misinterpretation are seemingly endless. And that's why I've always appreciated Dane Ortland's comments about this. He noted that some of us have had great dads and others of us have had dads that were, you know, who horribly mistreated us, you know, or abandoned us physically and or emotionally. But whatever the case, he says, any good that we've had from a dad is only a faint glimmer to the goodness in God as a father. God's fatherly goodness exceeds whatever good we've had in our own good dad. And the bad that we've experienced with any earthly dad is a photo negative of the good that we have with God as a father. That God's fatherly care and love is a polar opposite to the bad and the less than good that we've had from our dads. And so any earthly father that we look at, any earthly father that we've experienced or or have seen, it's only a shadowy reflection of the glory and the goodness of God as a father. I mean, think how remarkable this is for just a second for everyone who's embraced Jesus in faith. Love is the order of the day with God now. He's never stingy with his kindness towards you. Sticking with us when no one else will and tells us the truth when no one else dares. And he's never cautious, never cautious with his tenderness. I mean, do you ever wonder who is watching out for you? God does. Better than any helicopter parent around because he never sleeps and slumbers and he's always with you. Do you ever wish that there would be someone who would help you become all that you are? God does. With his infinite wisdom and tender care that dwarfs the best mentors we've had, the best teachers we've run into, the coaches and parents. He teaches us and trains us and corrects us so as to form us, to bring out everything he's put into us as divine image bearers, so that we'd live and that we'd love like Jesus would in our place with virtue and moral excellence. Do you ever wish that someone would take you seriously? God does. All the time, he's listening all the time. He's listening to us when we're talking to him. He's overhearing what we're talking about all the time. And then he responds by giving us what we actually need. And what we would actually ask for if we knew what he knew as our heavenly father. I mean, do you ever feel pain? And as if no one gets you, God empathizes with you. He suffers with us in our suffering just like any loving parent does, no matter how old a child gets, because once a parent, always a parent, even those of adult children, right? I mean, use this biblically shaped imagination for a father. And God is that, and even better. You see, the gospel is the good news of God's kingdom breaking into history through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to redeem people from slavery, and for adoption. Now, here's the, earth, here's the earth-shattering thing about this. This is where your minds and my mind should be blown here. Redeem is not just a religious doctrine to be studied and believed and written about in an object of reality for us as Christians. It is that, but it's more than that. Redeem is also to be this deeply felt and recognized experience in our life. From the very depths of our soul to our head, our hearts, and our hands. Here's how Paul put it. Look what he says. He says this. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. For redeeming to be something that's not just purely external, but internal and a part of the fabric of our interior world, God sends his spirit to indwell us. And there in our interior, the spirit prompts, he prods for us to reach out to God, crying out like a child cries for their father. And this idea of crying doesn't speak so much to the volume of the words, but rather the fervency, the the passion, the deep feeling, the intensity of the Spirit's voice in our voice. And so there's this inward joyful conviction over God being our our Father, and and, uh, and us being a child that is brought by the Spirit, that gets reflected in what we voice to God. I mean, do you know this experience? I mean, when we're happy or when we're sad, when we're celebrating something great in life or facing deep challenges that scare the pants off us, when we're grateful for something that's happened in life that's surprising, you know, or some, or, you know, we're just trying to survive this time. I mean, don't you instinctively just reach out to God? I mean, in the heat last week, didn't you just reach out to God just a little bit, right? Not in some impressive, you know, prepared speech. But crying out spontaneously, simply, and honestly. I mean, granted, you know, prepared prayers like we studied in the Psalms. They teach us how to pray. They expand the language of prayer. But this is the cry of a child to their parent. Relaying their emotions. You know, processing what to do next. Begging their parent, come and intervene, please. All because the, the parent is near. Listening, ready to help. It makes me think of this man, um, Isaac Bashevis Singer. Uh, He was a Polish-born Jewish writer. He won the Nobel uh, Prize for Literature in 1978 for many of his works of fiction, actually, that depicted Jewish life in both Poland and America. And once he commented, he made the comment, he said, Whenever I'm in trouble, I pray. And because I'm in trouble all the time, I pray almost constantly, right? You see, this is the knee-jerk reaction, that instinctive move to tell God something. Even if it's not, you know, really well rehearsed, cleaned up, it's just bold, it's just brash, it's just raw. That's actually the spirit in our interior, that God has redeemed us from slavery, that we become sons and daughters of God. It's the Spirit's movement, even if we don't put our finger on it, to give us confidence that God is actually near enough to hear. The help that we, we can be bold and brash with God and honest with God, like a child is to their dad. The assurance that God will actually do something about it if he hears it. But now, now that we put our finger on that instinct that you would have had, that I have had, We can appreciate what those inclinations are, right? We're not in the dark anymore about this. They're not just empty wishes. It's God's spirit stirring in us to reach out to God as a father, to live out what Jesus has done in redeeming us from slavery, to be adopted as sons. And so now now you can cultivate that. You can deepen that in our inner world, paying attention greater to it by responding to them, not ignoring them as just craziness by following that inner instinct to call to God, to not brush them aside in fear. And now, you know, when that happens, we can kind of take that sense and make that our lens for analyzing and understanding our everyday lives. That God is our Father through all of it, and that's why we're reaching out. And he's readily available with his wisdom and with his timing. And then you see, that sense of being redeemed from slavery, that sense of adoption, it only grows in our interior world as a lens for how we view and how we live life. You see, the gospel is the good news of God's kingdom breaking into history through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to redeem people from slavery for adoption and to be experienced in real time, this is the best of all news—news news of God's massive rescue effort to come for each and every one of us who are in greater danger than that whole group in the Tham Luang Cave. Jesus has come to free us from our prison of sin and shame, but he did not just leave us behind to fend for ourselves because he adopted us as well. He did not free us like some prisoner. He hung a medal around our neck of the highest honor in adoption and then continues to whisper about its reality to our hearts in the spirit. That's news to enter into by faith. And good enough news to rearrange our entire life around and as well as the lens of how we see and operate in this world, is it not? So let's pray to that end, shall we? God, our Father, who has made us your sons and your daughters by the work of Jesus, God, I pray for us that we would feel this deeply that we would be able to recognize your spirits, whisper in our spirits, that we are free and that we are adopted and there are no second-class citizens, no matter how we may feel, there are no second-class citizens with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live into that with boldness. I pray you'd help us to live with that as a lens for how we see, how we operate, where we work, the jobs we have, how we manage our homes, how we go to school with friends. God, would you make that our our real sense of who we are, that we might really live as free and adopted sons and daughters of yours. We pray that you would do this for our joy and our ongoing freedom, but also for your glory and greater attention to what you have done in your kingdom come through Jesus. We pray this in his name.